He finished the final lines of his speech to a thunderous applause of a grateful audience. He had come to the United States to be an expert on excellence. He was amazed at how the United States had mobilized and created a fighting force that could change the tide of the Second World War, how they brought to bear tools and men and a spirit that had come up against some of the darkest forces our world had ever known and had allowed for the Allies to have a great victory. It had been for years that he had wanted to come to the United States and, and meet the people and see the systems behind the war effort that had brought peace to Europe and to Asia. And he had delivered a powerful speech to a group of college young people, and afterwards he had paused for some questions from members of the media that had gathered that day. And they asked him the usual questions, what his impressions were of the United States, what he felt like in the manufacturing systems of the United States. He had oversaw a lot of the rebuilding of Europe, and so they, they asked him about how the, the European economy might compare with the United States economy. And somewhere in the middle of that questioning, he paused for a moment. He said, if I may, I would like to address something that concerns me. He said, I've seen the color palette of, of American talent and ability, and it's, it's expansive and it's impressive. You guys have built a nation that has accomplished many things and have done them well. But there is one color that seems to be lacking on the color palette of the American emotion. And that is the value of suffering. He said, I've asked a number of people, and always I, I, I get back just kind of an icy stare or a dismissive statement. I think that we need to introduce to your color palette an understanding of the importance of suffering. And then he finishes with this statement. I'm just going to read what he said because it's better than I could summarize. One perhaps does not even need to be a Christian to know that suffering belongs to the very nature of this world, and it will not pass away until this world passes away. And beyond this, we as Christians know that in a hidden way, it is connected with man's reaching for forbidden fruit, but that God can transform even the burden of a fallen world into a blessing and fill it with meaning. It was that aspect of our understanding of suffering that, that troubled this man's estimation of us as Americans. We work very, very hard and to continue to to this day to avoid a lot of suffering, right? And, and, and even though we may, we may suffer far less than our ancestors, the reality is, is that at some point in life, all of us are going to find a difficult situation. All of us will deal with pain. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we started the sermon series where we took a look at the vintage, the old stories of the Old Testament. We started way back in the very beginning at that moment in time where, where God created Adam and he created Eve from Adam and they had a perfect world and a perfect relationship and they walked in unity with God until that moment that Eve reached out and took the forbidden fruit. And we saw that the price and the payment for sin was heavy, not just in the life of Adam and Eve personally, but it radiated into their family. One son rises up against the other son and took his life over jealousy. 
And eventually it would impact the entire world to the point that God would come to a man by the name of Noah and he would say to Noah, Noah, I can't put up with the world anymore. I'm sorry I even made it. We are going to have to wash this clean. But Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord and through his faithful service and his obedience to God, God saved the world and mankind's prospects in an ark that Noah built. It wasn't long after that till the world began to flourish once again. And this morning, we find our next story in this series. In that beginning period, in a time quite a long time ago, the world has certainly exploded. In fact, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of Job. Job is a guy whose name's often mispronounced and his story is often not understood, but it is very significant if we are going to understand and have a biblical understanding of suffering and the role that suffering plays in the world. It begins simply in verse number one by saying, in the man, or there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Really, that's a great summary for everything else that we're going to read in this book. But let me just say, while some of you maybe are clicking over there, that Job is likely, if we figured out all the genealogies correctly, Job is likely contemporary with Abram. And so they're living in a time where they're a patriarchal system. The dad is in charge of the spiritual life of the family. And you'll see that reflected in the text that follows. But not only was Job a guy who lived in the land of of us, and not only was he blameless and upright in everything that he did, but the Bible makes a point of explaining to us the amount of wealth that Job possessed. And this is important for reasons we'll see in a moment. It starts off with family, because family is the most important things, right, outside of God. And it says that there was born to him seven sons and three daughters. And then it says that he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, I guess so, to take care of that herd, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east." We, we, we kind of just see that this guy is a guy that has it all together. He has a relationship with God. He has a great relationship with family. He has a lot of possessions. If you're looking for somebody that's successful in the world, Job's name was written all over it. In fact, so much so that everyone said Job is the greatest guy in all the East. And then we see the level of commitment that Job had, not just to his things, but to the spiritual well-being of his family. It says in verse 4 that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. This family not only was a big family. I mean, you got seven, you got ten kids. It's a pretty good sized bunch. But they liked to be around each other. They would spend days on ends together, all right? Some of us probably still struggle with that. And, but notice what it says here in verse 5. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning. He would offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is a guy that just has so many great things about him. So many great things about him, in fact, that as the story of Job continues, we begin to get a second perspective 
Now, Job is a unique book in Scripture because not only does it give us the, the kind of firsthand view of Job, this is the summary of Job's life, this is who he was, this is where he was, this is how many kids he has, this is his possessions, this was his accomplishments in this world, but we also get to see what happens on the other side of the spiritual reality. Not only do we see what's happening on earth, but in the book of Job, we begin to see what is happening in heaven. But remember, Job, as are we, was only aware of those things that were happening on earth. For all Job knows at this moment, he is simply doing what he has always done. But in heaven, another situation is happening altogether. In fact, it continues in verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro upon the earth and walking up and down upon it. I think for most of us, this kind of paints some big questions. First of all, what was Satan, the great enemy of God, doing in the presence of God? And then why isn't God engaging Satan in this conversation about where he's been and what he's doing? And Satan answers back. It seems, oh, so very nonchalant for two people that are so in opposition to one another. If there's any question in your mind, it's the character of this man, Job. Notice what follows. Not only was he the greatest man in all the East because of his possessions, but in verse number 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's one thing to have a lot of stuff. It's one thing to meet a lot, of, a, a lot of earthly success. Job had met that mark. But it's quite another thing for the creator of the universe to point you out to one who is constantly going to undermine what God was trying to accomplish in the world. God said, hey, but you notice Job. There's no one like him in all the earth. He's blameless and upright in all that he says and he does. And of course, Satan the great accuser of the saints. That's partly what his name means. The accuser of the saints is going to come back with a rebuttal. In verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a, not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. We've gotten through just a handful of verses. But if you're in your Bible today, or even if you're on an app, you're going to recognize that there's many chapters to follow. What follows in the story of Job is probably what makes the story of Job most important to us. But certainly we cannot preach through it in the way that we preach through the opening verses. So we are going to look at the six different ideas that are laid out in the book of Job about suffering. Because there's going to be six different people that weigh in in their own way about suffering. And eventually at the end, the final statement will kind of seal the entire book of Job. And so we should start where the Bible starts. We should take a look at Satan's estimate of suffering. What does Satan think of suffering? Because in the pain of this book in the Old Testament, we will see both the bad arguments and then all and eventually God's statement about suffering. Here's what Satan believes about suffering. 
Satan believes that suffering causes people to give up on God. And this is a theme that will be consistent throughout Scripture. You might notice that when Jesus comes into the world, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, and he's tempted of the, of the devil for 40 days. But the Bible tells us that in those 40 days, he did not eat. Satan came to Jesus, presumably toward the end of that period of time, recognizing that he would be in a physical state of suffering because he was malnourished. Satan believes that suffering separates people from God. Notice what happens to Jesus when he's betrayed by one of his own, abandoned by the rest of his closest followers, handed over to men with evil intent. His back was beaten. A crown of thorns was shoved into his scalp. He was hung on a cross to suffocate over a period of hours. Satan was convinced that if Jesus could be broken, he would be broken through suffering. Satan sometimes whispers in our ears in periods of pain and hurt, things like, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be suffering like this. You know, it's easy to fall into Satan's trap when we're hurting and when we're in pain. We begin to feel abandoned by God. We get frustrated with God. We begin to doubt that God loves us. We even maybe get angry with God. We begin to slowly drift as motions overwhelm us. And that drift doesn't happen all at once, does it? We find ourselves drifting, drifting away from our Christian friends and those who are walking with us in the spiritual journey of life. Our thought life and our language begins to shift slowly as we begin to think less like God and more like broken humanity. God has less and less of place in our life and we eventually are living like we never knew Christ in the first place. Listen, Satan is convinced that suffering will separate us from God because he's seen it work over and over and over again. Satan knows that sometimes when we're in pain, we give up on God. But there's two things that are important for us to remember in those darkest moments of our life. Number one, in God is still in control. Whether or not we can sense it or not, And number two, God is aware of every time Satan tries to bring suffering in our lives. If we were to take time this morning, which we can't, to read through this entire story, you'll know that God set certain limitations on Satan. God is going to tell Satan, Satan, if you would like, you can go into the the life of of Job and you can make a mess of his life. In fact, we, 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 uh, we kind of skipped over that section. I, I should just summarize it by telling you that after God gives jo- uh, Satan this permission, Job is in his house, normal day, just like every other day, when the Sabians, a group of people from Arabia, come. They take all of his donkeys, all of his oxen, and they kill every single servant except one. Satan left one guy alive so that guy could run in fear of his life and tell Job, you've just lost a huge part of your wealth. And before that guy had finished summarizing the situation before Job, another servant comes, falls at his feet and said, fire from heaven came and it consumed all the sheep and all the servants except one. And I alone have come to tell you the message. And while he was still speaking, a third servant comes and he enters the house and he said, camels have been taken by the Chaldeans 
And all the servants, likely people that are Job's friends, and maybe he treats them just like family, they have been killed, except one guy who I've come to tell you what happened. And while he was still relating that event to Job, the fourth guy comes and he says, all your kids were together. They were having one of their gatherings when a big wind came out of the four corners of the, of the desert. It struck the house. The house was destroyed. Everyone in the house died except me. I alone have come to tell you what happened. In just what it would appear, a 15-minute window, Job realizes that he's lost his entire, his entire fortune, his entire friend group, and his very family has been reduced from 10 children to just his spouse. And Satan's going to show up before God again, and God is going to say to Satan, well, how, what do you think of my servant Job now? And Satan says, well, you know what? He's just selfish. Satan is convinced that suffering separates people from God. It makes people give up on God. And the fact that that Job hadn't cursed God yet, Satan said, if you let me touch his body, then he'll he'll turn on you. He's going to curse God. God said, you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. Now, I got to point out something to you this morning. I'd be amiss if I didn't. What happened? That is Satan's fingerprint. Satan comes in the world to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And that's exactly what he did to Job. When God pulled back his protection for reasons of God's own knowing, he killed, stole, and destroyed every possession that Job had as fast as possible. He would come and strike Job personally with a case of the boils, like has never been seen probably. His entire body was covered with oozy, pussy, crusty sores. Job was so miserable that he's just sitting outside of the door of his house in the dust with a piece of pottery, just scraping away the crust off the top of the sores that covered his body. This is a man completely broken. Remember, he doesn't know about the conversation in heaven, but we do. And we know that God was always in control And that God knew exactly what it was that he was going through. Satan will try to convince you that God isn't in control or he doesn't know what's happening. Neither of these two things were true in the story of the life of Job. There was another perspective there as well. In fact, we we see it fairly early on. In the second chapter of the book of Job, Job's wife. And Job's wife's perspective on suffering was that suffering is a reason to give up on life. She comes out and she sees Job there, a broken man, his fortune taken, his health racked. And she says, why do you maintain your integrity? Just curse God and die. We're often hard on this poor lady, but don't forget that she was kind of along for the ride. She had seen her financial security vaporize in a moment. She had lost her 10 children in this tragic accident. She was broken and mourning and grieving and hurting. And as she steps outside the door of her house, she sees the man that she loved and she made a family with whose health was so completely racked that he just sat there in stooped misery. And she said what often people say even today. Why don't you just give up on life? Sometimes in our darkest moments, life doesn't seem worth living. 
And Job is going to respond to her, probably not in the best of ways, in Job 2 and verse 10. She only really speaks this one time in the entire book of Job, in verse number 6 of chapter 2. Job comes back to her in verse number 10, and he says, you're talking like a foolish woman. All right, probably not the best way for him to address his wife, but he was right in a sense. She hadn't thought the thing through. Stephen Hawking, some of you guys maybe know the name. He was a brilliant astrophysicist that worked out of Cambridge. Probably did more to advance Einstein's theory of relativity than anyone since Einstein. And, um, and, and made a lot of critical discoveries. Stephen Hawkins was a, was a passionate atheist and an evolutionist in so many ways. And as a younger person, he said that life was just a boring existence. He didn't really like life. He, he said, I'm ready to be done with it whenever. This is kind of a boring existence. And then he was diagnosed with ALS. Some of you maybe know that disease better as Lou Gehrig's disease, although I don't think Lou Gehrig actually had ALS. Um, ALS is the disease that slowly begins to take away your ability to do anything for yourself. It starts in your feet and your outside extremities, and it slowly paralyzes your body while your mind remains clear and as brilliant as ever. And it's interesting that in the latter portion of Stephen Hawkins' life, he was an extremely passionate person about life. And someone asked him once, why were you so dismissive of life as a young person and now so passionate about life since your life is so hard? And he said, you know, when, when you have everything at your disposal, it's hard to be appreciative for anything. But when so many things have been taken from you, It's easy to be thankful for the few things that remain. Suffering doesn't have to separate us from God. And it isn't a reason to give up on God or to give up on life. Job understood that his life was in God's hands. And his life wasn't his to take Culturally today, we, we are in the midst of kind of a cultural debate about the role of youth in Asia and dealing with people who are older and people whose health is compromised even at a younger age. And if any of you have ever been with a person who is older and suffering through the challenges of, of old age or you've ever known somebody that has limitations in their physical life, you'll know that often those people are sometimes more alive than those of us who have complete control of our faculties and our extremities. Job recognized that his wife, while maybe reasonable in some sense in her view of the world, was wrong when she thought that suffering was a reason to give up on life. In fact, when you look at the story of Jesus, you're reminded in Isaiah 53 and verse 3 that as God is looking forward to the life of Christ, Christ's whole life is going to be painful. Isaiah 53, 3 describes Jesus in this way. It says he was was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Saying, hey, if if there was a guy that had it made, it wasn't Jesus. His life was full of struggle. His life was full of pain. It was full of difficulty. In fact, people were sometimes even embarrassed to be associated with him. That was God's son that he sent into the world. The Apostle Paul caught a glimpse of this later in his life, and as he's writing to the church in Philippi, he says in Philippians 3, he said, I want to know Jesus. I want to know him and the power of the resurrection 
that I might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Sometimes when suffering becomes a part of our story, we're immediately uh, drawn to think the best of my life is over. The good that I can accomplish has now all been accomplished. But think about it in the story of Job. We would not know his name. We would not admire his character. We would not be motivated and encouraged by the epic tale of his life if there hadn't been pain. It would have just been another story of a great man who had a lot of animals and who had a good family and who died. But because of the situation that Job encountered, his life now has a purpose and meaning far greater than his possessions, his family, and his relationship with God inspires generations of Christians to fight through their challenges. Then there's Job's friends. As you continue on through the book of Job, you you recognize that Job has three friends that show up, and their perspective on suffering, also inaccurate, was that suffering is a punishment for sin. Job, you've obviously done something wrong. His three friends' names were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And these three guys came from quite a distance. It gives us their home areas here. And you can kind of plot them on a map and realize these guys made a concerted effort to be here. And so before we get too hard on these guys, we should at least acknowledge that they showed up. And one of the things that they did that was really impressive is that for the first seven days, having come to visit Job in his grief and in his misery and in his sorrow and in his pain, they simply sat there in silence and grieved with him. Sometimes as humans, we were uncomfortable to put ourselves in a place or around a person that's going through a difficult season in life. And oftentimes people will say, well, Jason, I don't know what to say. So here's just a little encouragement from scripture. Sometimes when somebody's going through a heartache that's this big, you really don't have to say anything. They were just present. They just sat there together. They just had a moment or a week of solidarity with a friend who was going through the lowest period in his life. In fact, I think it's easily arguable that it was at that point in time that they opened their mouth where things got really ugly. (laughs) Because in that week of silence, they were supportive. But when they opened their mouth, they turned on Job because in the back of their mind, they came convinced of something, that suffering was because of sin. Now, we know the story, right? We know that Job was a blameless and upright man. But they don't know this. And so Eliphaz told Job that he was suffering because of his sin, not just once, but in Job 4, in Job 5, in Job 15, and in Job 22. They just kept coming back to it. His buddy Bildad told Job that he he had not admitted that he had sinned, so he is still suffering. If you would just admit, Job, that you've sinned, that you wouldn't suffer as much as you do. And he told him that three different occasions in Job 8, Job 18, and Job 20. And then the third friend, Zophar, told Job that he deserved even more suffering due to his sin. Undoubtedly, Job, you haven't even suffered enough yet because you're such a terrible person. And Job, of course, answers back these guys. And that's the whole epic middle portion of the book of Job. They make an accusation. Job answers the accusation. They make an accusation. Job answers the accusation. The truth of the matter is these three guys were all dead wrong. In Job 2, when Satan shows up after having 
ravaged Job's, or Satan shows up after having ravaged Job's possessions. God says this. He said, you have made me inflict suffering upon him without any reason. Now, I'm not here to tell you this morning that sin does not come with suffering. Sin definitely does sometimes come with the painful suffering of reality. I have a good friend that will have to live the rest of his life with the knowledge that because he chose to operate a motor vehicle while intoxicated, portions of his family and portions of other people's family are no longer here. Every moment that he gets up, every day that he goes to work, he has to recognize that he is living life while others aren't because of the choices that he made. Certainly, sin has consequences, and often those consequences are very painful. But just because somebody is going through suffering doesn't mean that there is unrepented sin in their life. Now, another friend will show up later. His name is Elihu. And Elihu shows up with a different supposition altogether that suffering is punishment for pride. His idea, he, in fact, he starts out and he tells Job, Job, you're a really good guy, but here's the thing about you, Job. You have all this stuff. You were the greatest man in all the East, and it must have got to your head. You must have thought, you know what? I'm a really good dude, and uh, I'm more important than everyone else, and uh, I'm special to God, and God's just showing you that no one's immune to the challenges of life. And again, it's true that sometimes God uses suffering to humble us and to purify our faith. But there is no hint in this story that God intended Job to suffer in order to humble him. In fact, there's no intent in this story that God intended Job to suffer at all. Satan is the cause of the suffering. I've heard a lot of people say a lot of things that maybe we could say are foolish this morning, talking to people who are going through difficult seasons of time. In fact, I know of somebody not long ago that someone told him, listen, God isn't answering your prayers for healing because you don't have enough faith. If you just have more faith, then you will be healed. In fact, you could probably click over to a sermon right now of a church somewhere in the United States where the preacher is saying, hey, if you have enough faith, God will help you fix your finances. If you have enough faith, God will take away that situation in your life. If you have enough faith, you will walk out of the hospital. And guys, that's simply not true. Job is a upright, righteous guy. God said, have you considered him? There's no one like him in all the earth. And he is going through a torturous period at this point in time. Job's three friends and Elihu, this younger man that comes along later, all got it wrong. Job doesn't even bother to answer back this young man. I think probably, maybe he's just exhausted by this point or possibly just realizes, you know what, this is a young kid. He doesn't even have enough perspective in life to understand what he's saying. Job arrives at his own conclusion. Job decides that suffering has no meaning at all just a meaningless part of life, a random chance. Bad things happen to good people. It's just the way it is. Job's wife didn't understand. She said, why don't you just give up on life? Job's friends didn't understand. They thought it was about sin or about pride. And Job doesn't understand either. He just assumes that it's something you have to go through. In fact, 16 times in the book of Job, Job will ask this question of God, why am I suffering? 
Why is God allowing this to happen to me? And God allowed the question, why, Lord, to cause him to begin to doubt God's goodness. Now, Job never doubted God's power. He never doubted God's authority. But he definitely doubted God's goodness. Sometimes we simply have to say, God, I'm putting my life in your hands. I've done everything I know to do. You take control. Because sometimes God's actions are just simply beyond our understanding. Job had had a lot of time to think it through. If there was sin, Job would have asked for forgiveness. If there was pride, Job would have acknowledged it. Job just decided it was empty and meaningless, and God is about to show up and remind him that no, tr- no challenge in life goes wasted. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 15, 16 says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? We don't see the whole picture. I know I've mentioned this several times, but I don't want you guys to forget that while we know the story in heaven and we know the story of earth, Job knows only one story. He knows that he was sitting on his front porch like he did every morning when servants started streaming through his door telling him that everything he had was lost. And while he's mourning the loss of all of his possessions, he begins to notice that all over his body, painful boils are, being, are breaking out. All he knows is that he was doing what he was supposed to do and now his life has fallen apart. But then God shows up. It's a powerful and fitting end to the tale that we, that we hear in the book of Job. In Job 38, God shows up in this powerful hurricane of a wind. And God comes and gives Job the ultimate understanding of suffering. The suffering teaches us to trust God for who he is, not for what he does. We often in our world today tend to judge people based on what they're doing. Job had no way to know what God was doing. We recognize that, right? We, we look at the story and we're like, well, Job, God is, God is proving this huge point to the most evil force in the universe that we know of. And he's trying to prove that people will follow him even if they're not, every need's not met. And even if things are painful and even if things are difficult, you can't break people's faith in God. But Job doesn't know that. He can't know that. God says to Job, Job, trust me for who I am, not just what I do. I understand why Job thought God was causing all of this. We know that technically Satan was and God was allowing it. But after 37 chapters of silence, God shows up and he says this. Verse number one of chapter 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And Job has been demanding that God answer for what's happening. He's like, God, I need answers. And if you've ever gone through suffering, if you've ever lost somebody that's very close to you, if you've dealt with a painful situation, you know exactly what Job is asking. I want to know why. I want answers. I need answers. God says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. God starts off a conversation with Job and simply says, Job, Gird up your loins, get ready. I am the one that answers questions in the universe. You are the one that answers them. 
God begins to ask Job a series of questions. We don't have time for that because our time has come and gone. Ask him about all kinds of things. And Job is just kind of forced to say, after each of these things, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. God is proving a point to Job. There's a lot more in the world going on than you know, Job. What Job needed was a new understanding of God. Rather than to tell Job the reason for his suffering, God assured Job of his love and of his wisdom and of his power. Job learned the important lesson that when everything is stripped away from our lives and all we have is God, God is enough. When we've been emptied and we have no more, no matter how bad it gets, God's love and his grace and his strength are sufficient for us because his power is made perfect in our weakness. Someday, every single one of us are going to face a time like Job where we will and stand in the world having kind of lost everything that was valuable to us. Even if we live to be a ripe old age, our career will eventually, we will walk away from that in retirement. Our finances and the things that we've accumulated will be given to others who can use them. Our health will have broken down to the point that we are barely hanging on to life. We will stand before the one who created everything. And there's really only two ways that we can stand before our Heavenly Father in that moment. Our Heavenly Father can stand before us as our judge and the righteous judge he would be. And he would have to look at every one of us and say, you're a wreck, Jason. You're broken. You're a mess out of my presence. Or we can stand before him as our Heavenly Father. The one who loved us enough that he was willing to send his own son into this broken mess to save us. And that choice today is yours to make. Maybe some of us here today have never never been willing to say, you know what, it's time for me to have my sins washed away in the waters of baptism. It's time for me to open my life to become the temple, to become the home of the Holy Spirit because I need to be made alive in Christ. That's the greatest opportunity you will ever get because then the Heavenly Father becomes something so much more than just a fearful figure in the shadows. He becomes a father with his arm around your shoulder, no matter what you are facing. He is enough. I don't know if you, I got to tell you the end of the story because it's just amazing, right? God eventually shows up and he sets everyone straight. He sets the devil straight. He sets the friends straight. He sets Job straight. And then God goes back to heaven. He never tells him why. But he blesses him, gives him seven sons and three daughters like he had the first time, doubles all of his possessions. He was undisputably the greatest man in the East. Our Father is here for us. Don't let Satan talk you out of the most important relationship that you have. And if you've never made that step, let's make that today. We're going to stand together, church, and we're going to sing. If you have a need, Please come 
as we do so.